Um, I think we can. I think we can get started here. Um, so we've invited uh, Eric Voorhees. Eric, thanks for for being a part of this. Um, we just wanted to do a little bit of a debrief based on the New York Times interview that Andrew Glassork and just Sam Beckman Freed at the at the Dealbook Summit. So, um, Eric, maybe I could you know just open this up, and I, I see there are already a whole bunch of people in the audience. So. Others who I, I think I'd just like to get um, sort of overall take of the interview. Uh, he actually really did. I got into to Andrew Russell, and I think he asked a lot of specific questions and got at a lot of the nuance that I think crypto, uh, crypto Twitter has been aware of for a little while, but it hasn't really been covered in mainstream media. So I want to go kind of point by point later on. But uh, Eric, maybe I can just open it up to you and sort of ask, like, what was your overall take of, of the interview that SBF just gave? Hey, uh, can you hear me? Yep. Cool. cool. Um, yeah. So overall take, I mean, first of all, what the fuck was he thinking doing that? And that's, I guess the first question that everyone should be asking. Um, that is absolutely insane for him to have gone on a public interview like that for an hour on stage where the entire world is watching and basically just answering these questions. Um, I appreciate that he did it, but it's totally insane. And I don't understand how someone who was running this business enterprise, like doesn't have lawyers talking with him right now. I guess it's emblematic of a great deal of things that he just <laughs> that like hasn't thought about very well. Um, but that was, that was wild. I mean, like, I feel like when I was CEO of Shapeshift, every single sentence I ever wanted to say, we would run through lawyers because we knew regulators were watching us. And that was super uncomfortable and hated doing it. Um, but then here's Sam committing a $10 billion fraud and he goes in front of the New York Times and the whole world. Um, let's see, what other thoughts? So he doesn't seem to really accept responsibility for the, the fundamental crime here, which taking customer money and loaning it out and gambling it. Um, he, he seems to feel like that wasn't such a big deal. And the problem was just like, they didn't do a good job of risk management. You know, like they just should have set the levers a little differently and they didn't quite have the right oversight of themselves. Um, but he doesn't really seem to acknowledge that he stole billions of dollars of customer money. Mm. And, and I guess, you know, I guess if he's in that headspace, it kind of explains why he's willing to do these kind of interviews because he, he doesn't understand the caliber of, um, of fraud that was perpetrated here. So those are a couple quick points. Mm. How, how do you think that he is going to do in the court of public opinion after this? Because, you know, there was one thing that sort of stood out to an exchange in between him and Andrew Ross Orkin, where Andrew Ross Orkin sort of asks, what are your lawyers telling you right now, to your point? Do you think this is a good idea? And the crowd laughed. And then SBF responded, no, they most certainly do not think that this was a good idea. And the crowd laughed again. And... You know, what it sort of reminded me of is I'm never, not sure if you saw the jinx uh, in that whole uh, docuseries with Robert Durst, but there is an excerpt of that that I thought was kind of telling, which was, you know, you had the lawyers that were defending Robert Durst, and he was describing what Robert Durst did, you know, acting out the, you know, he was accused of murder, right? And he was kind of acting this out in court, and people started to laugh at him acting this out. And the lawyer said, that's when I knew that he was good. That's when I knew we, we had, we, he was going to get off scot-free. So I, you know, I, I'm questioning if like, did you also, were you also a little bit concerned almost that you heard those laughs or how do you think he fared from a, from a public opinion standpoint after this interview? The laughing was really weird. It felt a little hunger games. Like um, it felt like the audience doesn't realize that a million people have lost uh, several billion dollars of their money from a like one of the greatest financial frauds ever committed like de deadly serious crime here um and they were laughing because he's like this kind of quaint guy that that acts all goofy and his his hair is messed up and and it's it was so weird um i i don't i don't understand that so in terms of the court of public opinion i i think I'd, be, I'd like to know what people who are not in the crypto world think, because in the crypto world, um, SBF is like enemy number one. I think everyone rightly refers to him as a scammer slash fraudster slash thief. And there isn't really any controversy about that. But there certainly does seem to be like a campaign to paint this guy as 
this ambitious young kid that got a little too over his skis and was trying to make the world a better place, but, you know, isn't finance hard. And, and that's why we leave banks and, you know, uh, well, well played SPF, but we'll, we'll make sure that the banks keep managing everyone's money for them because they're professional and they wear their suits. So yeah, a lot of weird cross currents going on here. Um, certainly don't think that the crypto community was won over to Sam, uh, the comments here. Mm. No, I, I would agree with you. I think, I'm not sure, Eric, if you ever, you had a wonderful, very meaningful, I think, uh, debate with SBF about a week before all of this ended up getting uncovered. Uh, it was Bankless interview. And, you know, it strikes me that you're, you're probably not unaware that most of the people in the crypto community thought you came ahead in that debate, right? Myself included. Uh, just by luck, I was in DC um, relatively recently and uh, the Blockchain Association Policy Summit, which was awesome, by the way. But if you if you talk to the some of the people in that circle, some of the regulatory people, they actually heard a very different debate there. Um, so, you know, my question to you is I'm kind of looking at this through the lens of I read that Vox interview that he gave. I heard him say that he didn't mean to give that interview, whatever. He, he gave that interview and those DMs are on the record. And he said that his big mistake was the one thing he regretted the most was not losing customer money, not anything like that. It was that he listened to his lawyers and went through the bankruptcy process. So, you know, how are you kind of, do you think he's sort of playing this game where he's, yeah, I've kind of lost the crypto community, but ultimately I want to push this in the, in the court of public opinion outside of crypto. I want to push this idea that, you know, I'm just a kid. I made some mistakes. He kept calling at risk management there. Do you, do you think that that's the game that he's ultimately trying to play here? I don't know. I think people need to stop overestimating his intelligence at this point. Mm. Um, like people keep thinking he's got some master plan and he's like working all angles. And the more I listen to him, the more I just feel like he's kind of an average dude that had moral compass and stole a bunch of money <laughs> and, and hasn't even come to terms with that. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think he's. I don't think there's any plan going on here. Uh, again, it's absolutely crazy that he's talking to people in in general. Yeah. Um, so let's go through a couple of the points that. So again, to introduce Sorkin's credit, he asked a couple of these questions very pointedly. You know, he asked, "Was it a fraud?" Sam Bankman-Fried responded, "No." He said, "Were the funds commingled?" He said, "No, not to my knowledge." Um, he said, "I think he said I, did, I didn't intend to." Is that what he? Is that what he said? Yeah, like I, I didn't intend for them to be commingled. Yeah. Okay. So let's like go through some. So you know, speaking of uh, you know your experience, your background at uh, Shapeshift. Um, I mean, can he be in trouble for saying some of these things on the record? Like, what's his legal liability now, having very expressly stated some of this stuff? Not sometimes in somewhat uncertain language, but sometimes in very not you know very direct language that he did not do these things. Like. What's his legal liability and exposure having said all this stuff? Uh, well, I'm not a lawyer, but I hope his legal liability has more to do with him stealing $10 billion in customer <laughs> funds rather than what he's saying yeah. about it. Right. right. I mean, um, that money on, it was a clear violation, not just of the fine print in their terms, but a violation of their, of their marketing and of the posture they made and of all the representations they conveyed about what they were doing, what they were not doing with customer money. Mm -hmm. um that's like, like that's what he's liable for and that's that's what matters everything he says beyond that you know i'm sure loyal, lawyers will have a field day with but i think it's the multiple billion dollars of customer money that he stole that's probably his biggest problem mm. there was a uh i wanted to get your take on one specific point um and this is where i, I might be waiting a little bit out of my, my depth here so I'm, I'm starting to see folks in the audience if, if you feel like you have expertise uh please you know feel free to raise your hand and, and we'll call you up on stage um but there was a, a moment where Andrew Ross Sorkin kind of brought up this idea of money laundering. Um, and he, he said the exact quote that he said was Alameda was Alameda used to wash money into FTX. I, per, you know, personally, based on my understanding is actually it was the opposite of that. He sort of got that backwards. And instead, Alameda was the mechanism that was being used to launder the funds that were customer deposits from FTX. Do you have the same interpretation there with that specific point in question? So I don't understand the specifics of that arrangement that much, but what it sounds like is actually not a big deal from a moral perspective, which is FTX was having problems with bank accounts. Alameda had bank accounts. They were thus using, FTX was thus using uh, Alameda bank accounts to help funnel money from customers into FTX. There's nothing ethically wrong with that. 
certainly a lot of regulators won't like it because like the wrong name is on the account that went in the wrong place. To me, that all seems like noise, right? Like that's not the crime here. The crime here is stealing billions of dollars of customer money. Mm. Do you think that the vast majority of people in that room walked away with the idea that he did steal customer money? I don't feel like that term was used enough. Mm. Like the, um, I feel like people are going to walk away with this feeling like he miss, he misallocated funds. Uh, he had bad risk management. He should have been more professional and had like a proper board, all these kind of things that like are sort of mistakes that, you know, any, any earnest person might make, especially when they're young. Uh, and there wasn't really just the, the direct debt on like, um, what do you think about stealing billions of dollars of customer money? What, what justified that in your head? So I, I worry that, that the, the mainstream that aren't in crypto, especially when they read all these batshit crazy puff piece articles that have come out, um, are, re- are not going to understand that this was like this huge financial fraud. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come across as an issue of oversight and management, and the appeal for regulation is going to be very loud on the back of that. I see. Um, I know we've got Jesse Powell in the audience here. Um, so Jesse's obviously the uh, founder at Kraken. I'm wondering, Blockworks, if we can invite him up because I'd love to get his opinion. Uh, yeah, what's up, Jesse? Jesse, I think we've. Uh, if you're listening, I think we've. I think we've invited you, um, but we might be having some here, some trouble there. Um, hey guys. Hey, thanks for the invitation. I can only speak for like five minutes and then I've got to go back on mute. Um, yeah, I totally agree with everything Eric said. You know, I think this, you know, I have a personal experience obviously with, with the New York Times and like these mainstream media pieces and I pretty much like, you know, zero confidence that anyone is going to read these pieces critically. Um, you know, people just kind of take what the New York Times says as, as the gospel. And, um, you know, if they are not explicitly calling him out for having stolen money, I think people are going to go on believing that basically, you know, this is just, yeah, whoopsie, like bad risk management. Sorry, like, you know, common mm-hmm. mistake. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just blowing my mind that nobody can seem to ask him, like, the tough questions. How would you guys rate uh, Andrew S. Sorkin's job in that interview? I'd, I'd say a B plus. Well, yeah, I, I would probably, maybe I give him a C. You know, I mean, he 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 asked some questions, you know, but like, what was, what was the whole point of this interview? You know, I mean, if you have Bernie Madoff in the chair, are you just going to dance around? Like, hey, how about just like, hey, Bernie, like, you know, when did it occur to you that you were insolvent? Uh, you know, how long have you been borrowing the customer's money? Did you really not believe that... Uh, you know, did you believe that FTT should be valued at, at like the market price for like an unlimited amount of like billions of dollars of collateral, despite the the liquidity in the market? You know, I mean, there he just came off as having either either no interest in asking those questions or just completely unstudied uh, on the topic. Mm. Um, what do you guys think? Zooming out actually for a second, it was you know I think there was a lot of it was a pretty controversial decision for this conversation to even air, you know, Andrew Ross Orkin kind of addressed it at the opening of the speech. Um, I want to talk about the broader mainstream media coverage of this, you know, this whole unfolding event in general, but what did you both think of the decision to interview SBF? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with interviewing criminals or talking to them. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's very important if that's going to happen that like tough questions get asked and it's done in a, responsible way. I think Sorkin did reasonably well with that. It, it wasn't a bunch of softball questions. Certainly there are questions I would have liked him to ask that he didn't. But um, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with with airing this kind of thing. I think um, it's better for people to see the person who has committed a crime actually talking about it than for them to just be cordoned off and silent, which is how it always goes in modern society. You know, the lawyers get their claws on you and then no one's saying anything. And you just get a lot less transparency on who the actual person is. So, um, yeah, I understand the controversy, but I, I think it's reasonable to to have an interview like that. I agree with Eric. You know, I, I wish Sorkin had, had just kind of like followed up on some questions when he got bullshit answers. You know, Sam, 
kept doing what he's been doing, which was like, you know, oh, I don't, I don't remember that or not to my knowledge or, you know, it was bad, just bad risk management or, you know, he, he just kind of like dodged all these questions. And um, it, I, I felt like we missed some really great opportunities to, to just dig like one level down and instead we just moved on to the next question. Jesse, what were, what were a couple of examples there, if you can remember, uh, about things that you wish they would have uh, just dove deeper into? What would you have asked? I mean, like some of the things that I, I had mentioned a second ago, you know, I mean, we, we could go I, like the thing is, I think at some point, Sam's just like, whoa, like, you know, if you ask him a hard question, you know, this guy is, is should be facing time in prison. Right. So, I mean, there's probably a line there between like what he's actually willing to answer before he like gets up and walks away, you know, or before his handlers like dive in and like tackle him off the chair. So. You know, I don't know. I don't know if there was like some kind of communication in advance about like what kind of questions or how far they were going to go with like follow up questions. Um, you know, I think you don't just if you want to have this interview continue. You know, you probably have to. Uh, you know, you can't just like straight up ask the murderer like you know, okay, so like what time did you you know commit the murder, right? Um, so you know, I don't know. You know, maybe I'm expecting too much for for something that was like a televised interview. Uh, but I, I feel like if you if you couldn't continue to drill in and really like interrogate him, then 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 what's the point? And does it just become basically like uh, an opportunity for Sam to to make himself a more likable character, you know, by like making the audience laugh or just you know appearing again like a normal guy on on you know a respected uh, program? Um, you know, is is this just sort of like? without that ability is it just sort of a reputation building exercise for him and what was the whole point jesse i know you've got limited time so i just want to make make the most of it and ask you a couple more questions um what have your thoughts been overall on the entire mainstream media's coverage of of sbf having been a subject of mainstream media coverage uh, yourself <laughs> i mean eric has this experience as well um you know, we <laughs> dealt with plenty of, of uh journalists who you know you can spend a lot of time with and um it doesn't mean they're going to paint you in in an accurate light at all and um you know i think they often have their minds made up about who someone is and what kind of story they want to write before they even start so i think for most of the mainstream media you know sam said it himself um they are you know, secretly or uh, you know openly secretly you know, liberal, and I think that they had saw what what Sam's political donations were, and and who he was at least openly affiliating with. You know, he's also said that he he made similar donations to the Republicans, just uh, in a confidential manner, so as to not piss off the mainstream media, who he was counting on to continue to write these puff pieces because uh, they felt like he was a part of their tribe. You know, while meanwhile he, he was playing both sides basically, uh, and you know, it's kind of surprising they continue to to treat him as a member of their tribe. Um, you know, they, they've really not approached this with the level of criticality. You know, they're, they're writing stories about other crypto companies, um, just like weird gossip pieces about, you know, internal company culture things and, um, you know, painting me and, and other crypto CEOs to be like horrible people. Meanwhile, like, uh, you know, Sam has stolen $10 billion and that, you know, that kind of language describing him it doesn't appear anywhere in, in any of these articles, you know, it's just like uh, a clumsy kid, like, you know, dropped $10 billion and like, it's not a big deal. You know, meanwhile, they're just like stretching to find any reason to, to paint me and, and other CEOs as, as evil and just tech broadly, actually, you know, it's like not just crypto, but it's just kind of mind blowing how this is like one standout example. And the, the difference maybe is, is just that Sam was like a really um, heavy investor uh, to, to the Democrats. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it just, it just totally hasn't been balanced. You know, I, I could, I could respect it if it was like somehow balanced, but because they're so negative on everyone else and they're so positive on Sam, um, uh, it's, it's just really disappointing. I mean, it just, it just further makes you question like what else have they taken this kind of approach with, you know, and this is obviously, you know, this is like, uh, what is it called? Like the Gell man effect, you know, where you like see one thing you actually really know about and they've just completely botched it. And then it makes you wonder like what else that you don't know that much about have they also botched that you just kind of assume that, that they were accurate on, but probably not. Uh, so yeah, it's been pretty, pretty terrible. I mean, Eric, Eric's got his own war stories. 
I like how Jesse used the term he invested in the Democratic Party. That's spot on. We should stop using this term donation for someone who's giving millions of dollars to uh, political parties and then having meetings on Capitol Hill with the people that are making the laws that regulate them. Uh, so good word choice there, Jesse. Um, certainly the certainly there's a dereliction of duty among the media here. Um, but media are writing words, and I think there's a greater dereliction of duty among regulators. And this is especially important when, during a time when regulators are wanting more power, which of course is all the time. They, and you know, let's talk about the SEC for a second. Um, it is a joke, most of the projects that the SEC had gone after, right? They, like Kim Kardashian, if I brought up them going after Kim Kardashian, it would almost sound like a joke, except that's what they, they actually did for some stupid little project that had almost no economic meaning. And um, here was the greatest fraud that hurt the greatest number of people in all of crypto history. You know, something around a million people, $10 billion, one of the greatest financial frauds in history. And the SEC knew who these people were, were already talking with them. And for, for many months ahead of this, there was nothing that they did. So at minimum, this has to be an example of the utter impotence of these agencies. And why in the world would anyone be advocating that upon that impotence, they're given more money and more resources? Um, that's really wild and crazy. So yeah, the, the, the media is one thing. Um, these regulators that destroy the lives of thousands of good entrepreneurs and then miss the greatest scam of all time in our industry, I think that's an important lesson that we need to take away from this. Mm. I, I've got one more question, then I want to open it up to our, our research team here, who I, I know have some as well. Um, you know, there's been a lot of attention, and Jesse, you sort of just mentioned this, to the donations that Sam has made in, in Washington, primarily to, to Democrats. I mean, how significant is are those donations that he made? Um, and do you think, you know, not to wade uh, into the land of conspiracy here, but either directly or indirectly, that's been the cause of his sort of light treatment from the mainstream media? Oh, I think Jesse, Jesse went left here. I don't know, Eric, if, if you have uh, opinions on that or, or if our, we can open it up to our, our research team to ask them questions. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say that like, um, certainly him being the second largest donor to the Democratic Party pro probably is sufficient evidence for many, uh, let's call them democratically sympathetic journalists to view him favorably, you know, view him as of the tribe, as Jesse said. Um, but I also think that Sam created a brand around himself that aligned very well with some of these journals. Um, it was very, very pro-establishment. Um, it was pro-regulation. And um, it wasn't really, it wasn't a brand of rebellion, which is really what the whole crypto ecosystem is about on any important level. It's one of rebellion against a status quo. And he was never like that. He, you know, he was the status quo. And uh, I think that that brand is what ended up earning him a lot of support from the media when shit hit the fan. Yeah, I'll hop in here too, Eric. I got plenty of questions for you. Something that surprised me in the interview was just how much he downplayed the role of FTT in the whole entire thing. I guess I'd just love to hear your thoughts on exchanges with you know native tokens and then also piggybacking off that. Um, pretty much every major exchange has a venture arm. Do you think this changes the landscape for exchanges with venture arms? Yeah, okay, so certainly the main crime here isn't that they made a token. The main crime here is that they stole billions of dollars of customer money and gave it to another party who then gambled and lost it all. Um, the focus needs to be remaining on that theft because that's really has nothing to do with crypto at all. And that's, that's a scam or a fraud that is as old as time. Um, th that they used the FTT token as collateral to guarantee the loan from uh, Alameda is just super stupid. I mean, to, to take an illiquid coin like that to that scale and accept it as collateral is just ho horribly dumb, um, grossly negligent. And so again, it's not that they created a token, which is the problem. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but foolishly accepting that as billions of dollars worth of collateral uh, was, was so stupid. You know, like there's just, no, there's no excuse for, for that. And it wouldn't have mattered if it was their token or any other small cap asset. 
that had high volatility. Um, if they had taken any other small cap crypto for that kind of collateral, that would have been, you know, equally as stupid. So, yeah, uh, on your other question of exchanges having venture arms, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's really relevant um, to the degree that any business in crypto is trying to invest in other projects. I think that's great, and the ones that do a really bad job of uh, of doing so will lose their capital, and that's it's called capitalism, and that'll keep happening regardless. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. I have a question. So you've been on this space longer than probably anyone listening in. And I'm wondering if you think in the grand scheme of things, this is going to be like good for the industry as people maybe look towards self-custody and DeFi, or is this just like another exchange hack? Um, I'm sure probably more than you. I, mean, I can't even imagine how many exchange hacks you've been around for. So I'm wondering if you think this could be a catalyst or if that's just being a little bit optimistic. In the short term, this is just all unequivocally awful and bad. It's horrible for all the people that have lost money. It's horrible for all the ancillary damage and the different companies that are getting hurt, you know, like legit startups that are going to go under because they held their money at FTX or an investment didn't come through because now their investors are more conservative than they were before this news happened. There's just so much ancillary damage. Um, that's all unequivocally bad. Whether this is, I'm not going to call it good long-term. If good comes of this, it is that it is a profoundly clear example of the importance of self-custody, A, and DeFi, B. And that that lesson needs to get understood, that, that like the whole point of crypto, the whole reason we're here, the whole reason blockchains are built and, and these apps exist and the money is being invested into the ecosystem in general is because it provides a new paradigm for financial management, a new paradigm for money. And that paradigm is one that is open, immutable, transparent, open source, borderless, these are attributes that we find in DeFi and that we do not find in centralized custodians. And um, the trust that people have to put in centralized custodians is always going to be a problem. And like Satoshi said himself, the, the problem with the traditional financial system is all the trust that's required to make it work. And if people continue to utilize services that they have to trust, um, we haven't really moved the, the needle. So, um, you know, I think each time this kind of thing happens, those who are in the industry move a little more toward openness, towards self-custody, you know, some portion of them. But as we grow and as we get into the next bull cycle, we're going to get, you know, tens of millions of new people that didn't learn this lesson. They're going to make all these same mistakes. And it's certainly on us to try to help them avoid them, but they won't. Like, unfortunately, a lot of people only learn lessons upon great, great pain. And many people are suffering that now. And hopefully they will learn those lessons and it'll make a healthier ecosystem over the long term. Thanks for that. And it definitely is really uh, sad and horrible. And there's, I don't think there's anything positive that can be taken from it. I totally agree. I was wondering, do any other research analysts have any questions they'd like to ask Eric or I could take this as well? I, I actually have a question for you, Eric, in, in general. Um, I mean, I, I, I know, you know, I'll ask this with the caveat that I know you're not necessarily a, a lawyer or a legal expert, but, you know, as, as the operator, uh, you know, I've shaped it for a period of time. I'm sure you you know, sort of got somewhat familiar with this, but I think a lot of people have been relatively confused as to why there haven't been, uh, you know, calls specifically from U.S. agencies about taking criminal action against Sam Bankman-Fried. Do you think this is, is this pretty normal because it takes a period of time to build a case and they're trying to sort out extradition rights and, well, maybe he had a business that wasn't being operated in the U.S. So we couldn't, you know, we don't have the jurisdiction to sort of go after him. I mean, what's your explanation and kind of just general thoughts about why we haven't seen criminal charges filed yet? I, I would personally be shocked if criminal charges don't happen. A lot of times those things take a while and it may be happening already behind the scenes. You know, it doesn't necessarily come to light. If Sam and FTX and Alameda and everyone involved in that haven't received a dozen subpoenas already for information, I'd be pretty shocked. Um, and if if a year goes by and and there are no criminal allegations filed. I think everyone should be asking like, why the hell that not? Um, but just because it hasn't been public, uh, just because it hasn't been like in the news about what those allegations might be in the specifics yet, I don't think that's so surprising. It's only been, it's only been a few weeks really. And those systems often are slow. Hmm. Were, were you surprised at all that there wasn't much discussion about the, 
you know, CEO, I guess, co-CEOs of Alameda. I guess the most recent acting CEO is Caroline Ellison. Before that, it was, um, you know, Sam Trabuco. They were, they were co-CEOs together. Uh, obviously, the culpability here, the ultimate, you know, he was careful to say this as well, right? The responsibility sort of lies with me. Um, but were you surprised that they didn't really get brought up uh, at all in the proceedings? Yeah, actually, now that I think about it, that is a little surprising. <clears throat> They've certainly been in the headlines enough that Sorkin should have been aware of it. But um, there's clearly like a cult of personality that had been built up around Sam. And so as it all falls apart, all the attention is on him as well. Mm-hmm. Um, surely he's not the only culpable person here, uh, even though he may be the main one. Do, do you think, um, there, you know, there's a period of time, there, there was a, he, he answered one question when, when Andrew Ross Sorkin was digging into him about the Vox interview. Uh, you know, personally, I think he sort of missed an opportunity to read what SBF had written, because I think if he had read the actual text and used quotes, it would have been more powerful, but he at least alluded to it. And he, you know, started talking about ESG and do you just say these things to build a reputation and he really leaned into that and just admitted, yes, I do do these things. And he specifically kind of called on ESG as being something that was kind of bullshit. I'm wondering, you know, it's kind of like that saying that the best, the best lies have a seed of truth. Um, again, I think ultimately public opinion will be consequential here. I'm wondering if you think that point kind of landed as a lot of people were probably sitting in that room thinking, yeah, maybe ESG, the way that it's structured today, isn't great. Do you think he kind of won one points there with with that admission? Or do you think even if he did, it doesn't really matter and it's ultimately inconsequential? I think that's one area where he's risking pissing off the the status quo or the mainstream mm-hmm. that have been kind of his allies. You know, like to to be to to question ESG is kind of like just to, to say you're the devil and that you like kill babies. <laughs> like how could you be how could you be against social good and, and the earth like you monster, you know? Mm. So for him to, um, to even acknowledge how much of that is uh, superficial posturing and so much of it is um, for him to acknowledge that, I, I don't think it will make him friends among the, the tribe who considers him friends. So yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, and you're absolutely right that Zorkin should have read some of the messages from that chat. Um, so salacious, but I'm surprised he didn't. Mm. Dan, I know you've got a question here. Yeah, I'd just love to get your take on kind of where we go from a regula- regulatory standpoint from here. You know, uh, SBF was really kind of the guy being the the figurehead of the DCCPA uh, regulation uh, in, in Washington. And, you know, how do you feel, how do you think that the regulators that were cl- tied closely to this are now kind of looking at this situation? You know, I could see them kind of wanting to take a step back and say, hey, you know, maybe we were, I guess the rational view would be, you know, hey, we were, we were tied up with the wrong guy. Maybe we need to rethink the regulation that was he was proposing. Um, but yeah, I'm just kind of curious if you have a take on if, you know, where does the DCCPA stand today? Uh, or do you think that, re- you know, regulation on this industry kind of gets pushed a little further down the road? Yeah, so the experts on that question um, might be the Blockchain Association and Jake Trevinsky with them just put out a good uh, tweet today about a letter that they're submitting to that committee. Um, my, and I don't have really any inside knowledge here, but my guess is that a lot of the regulators and politicians that were on board with the DCCPA, which seemed like it was imminent, it would do, like even happen this year, are probably distancing themselves from that as a, as a brand name and still will use this whole thing, the justification to bear down more regulation in some other bill with some other name um, that doesn't have Sam's fingerprints on it. But of course, it will have Sam's fingerprints on it. A lot of the things that Sam was inviting into the industry, you know, like the the licensure of DeFi frontends, for example, which would be an absolute non-starter and an absolute red line. Um, that stuff is probably still going to emerge in, in the next regulations. And so everyone who's involved in those discussions, I think, needs to continue highlighting the main lesson from all this, which is that this was an issue of traditional financial systems. This was an issue of trust in people. And what Sam did was already illegal. So there is no justification for extra regulations when the core thing he did is already illegal. Can't can't get more illegal than, than fraud. And that the alternative to this is open immutable systems that operate according to how code is written, which are not subjective, which do not rely on trust in any person. And anyone who cares about protecting users and having a financial system that's transparent and orderly 
should should understand that argument, uh, regulators included. Um, so Eric, you just mentioned uh, Jake Trevinsky. I saw him tweet actually something that we uh, that we were sort of just talking about. He's got a quote from from what SBF said during the interview, which is, "quote I wasn't running Alameda. I didn't know exactly what was going on. I didn't know the size of their position. If you're Car- or uh, you know Caroline Ellison or uh, Sam Trebuka right now, uh, I assume you're watching this and thinking very hard about your options. DOJ is only a phone call away. I have to admit, I actually when he was saying that during the interview, I didn't I didn't necessarily think about that. Him potentially putting culpability on someone else, namely the operators of Alameda at the time." I have no special knowledge here. I have heard that they've been uh, at least subpoenaed. So I'd be curious, actually, did you, you know, now that, you know, you've heard it kind of through that lens, do you think he could have actually, while saying, yeah, it's my fault, I was a CEO, do you think he actually might be trying to shunt some of the the culpability onto fall guys in the form of the Alameda CEOs? Perhaps, but, and and I'm sure there are a number of of crimes here, but Alameda isn't really the one that committed the great atrocity. The great atrocity was stealing customer money out of FTX. So he can't blame that on um, on anyone that was at Alameda. You know, that was authorized and executed by FTX. And if Alameda then got those assets and was stupid about it, then, you know, they have culpability for being stupid with with their assets because when they were transferred to them, it's theirs. The, the crime and the horrible action was in FTX taking customer money and then giving it to some other entity. Um, so... So I don't know how how many points that'll get with with Sam when when it wasn't really Alameda that, that was the core issue here. Mm. Um, I, I see, I see uh, Jim Bianco in the audience here. Jim, uh, I don't know if you're comfortable coming up and speaking. I would love to get your sort of thoughts on this as walking in both the, the more traditional financial world and, and crypto as well. So uh, if you're comfortable, uh, I think the audience would benefit from your sort of dual background and, and knowledge here. Um, but but while we're waiting, uh, Eric, I guess you just, and for, I, I know a bunch of people have recently joined, um, I guess just to kind of like tie a bow on, on all of this, um, I think it was probably a relatively controversial decision to, to invite SBF to have this talk. Um, do you think that ultimately there will be consequence from this? Either, you know, we talked a little bit about court of public opinion, he also said them some things today that are on the record that, at least to my knowledge, and I followed it relatively closely, he hasn't said definitively before, which could get thrown against him in, in legal proceedings. I mean, what do you view the most likely outcome of this speech to have been? Certainly any prosecutors that are involved in this were probably like opening the champagne and loving it. Um, so they have a bunch more food, but it's not like they were without food before. You know, like SBF has, ever since this collapse has happened, has just been throwing out so much, so many statements and so many weirdos and and revealing so many things. Um, so there wasn't really anything unique about this. It was just more par for the course of how Sam has acted since the event. Um, and, I, you know, ultimately, I don't know how much the court of public opinion really matters. Uh, if If criminal charges aren't brought, like that's a huge scandal in and of itself. If criminal charges are brought, court of public opinion shouldn't shouldn't matter that much and i mean maybe i'm having too much faith in the court system but um this will come down to various facts of whether sam breached the terms uh, of the exchange stole customer money or or didn't and i don't know how that could uh, come down at all um saying he didn't all right uh jim i see we've got you up here thanks for thanks for hopping on um i know eric is an og in crypto uh you have uh little more gray hair than, than all of us, I think, on this call. So, you know, I'd welcome your perspective on just this entire situation. I'm not sure if you if you caught SBF's speech they just gave at the, the Dealbook Summit, but would love to just get your your take on all this. Yeah, no, um, I, I watched the interview and uh, I got pissed off at it like everybody else. Uh, it is, I want to er- echo a lot of things that Eric said. This is this is and this is a crime that we already have rules of uh, that cover. This is fraud and crime and commingling of money that we've seen in the traditional financial world. You know, the most recent example, the most recent high-profile example of this might be MF Global ten years ago, former New Jersey Governor John Corzine commingled a few hundred million dollars worth of customer funds. So. Uh, I assume you're watching this and thinking very hard about your options. DOJ is only a phone call away. 
I have to admit, I actually, when he was saying that during the interview, I didn't, I didn't necessarily think about that. Him potentially putting culpability on someone else, namely the operators of Alameda at the time. I have no special knowledge here. I have heard that they've been uh, at least subpoenaed. So I'd be curious, actually, did you, you know, now that, you know, you've heard it kind of through that lens, do you think he could have actually, while saying, yeah, it's my fault, I was a CEO, do you think he actually might be trying to shunt some of the, the culpability onto fall guys in the form of the Alameda CEOs? Perhaps, but, and, I, and I'm sure that there are a number of, of crimes here, but Alameda isn't really the one that committed the great atrocity. Mm. The great atrocity was stealing customer money out of FTX. So he can't blame that on um, on anyone that was at Alameda. You know, that was authorized and executed by FTX. And if Alameda then got those assets and was stupid about it, then you know they have culpability for being stupid with with their assets because when they were transferred to them, it's theirs. The, the crime and the horrible action was in FTX taking customer money and then giving it to some other entity. Um, so, so I don't know how how many points that'll get with with Sam when when it wasn't really Alameda that, that was the core issue here. Um, I, I see, I see uh, Jim Bianco in the audience here. Jim, uh, I don't know if you're comfortable coming up and speaking. I would love to get your sort of thoughts on this as walking in both the, the more traditional financial world and, and crypto as well. So uh, if you're comfortable, uh, I think the audience would benefit from your sort of dual background and, and knowledge here. Um, but but while we're waiting, uh, Eric, I guess you just, and for, I, I know a bunch of people have recently joined. Um, I guess just to kind of like, tie a bow on on all of this um i think it was probably a relatively controversial decision to to invite sbf to have this talk um do you think that ultimately there will be consequence from this either kind of like tie a bow on on all of this um i think it was probably a relatively controversial decision to to invite sbf to have this talk um do you think that ultimately there will be consequence from this either you know we talked a little bit about court of public opinion he also said them some things today that are on the record that, at least to my knowledge, and I followed it relatively closely, he hasn't said definitively before, which could get thrown against him in, in legal proceedings. I mean, what do you view the most likely outcome of this speech to have been? Certainly any prosecutors that are involved in this were probably like opening the champagne and loving it. Um, so they have a bunch more food, but it's not like they were without food before. You know, like SBF has, ever since this collapse has happened, has just been throwing out so much, so many statements and so many weirdos and and revealing so many things. Um, so there wasn't really anything unique about this. It was just more par for the course of how Sam has acted since the event. Um, and, I, you know, ultimately, I don't know how much the court of public opinion really matters. Uh, if If criminal charges aren't brought, like that's a huge scandal in and of itself. If criminal charges are brought, court of public opinion shouldn't shouldn't matter that much and i mean maybe i'm having too much faith in the court system but um this will come down to various facts of whether sam breached the terms uh, of the exchange stole customer money or or didn't and i don't know how that could uh, come down at all um saying he didn't all right uh jim i see we've got you up here thanks for thanks for hopping on um i know eric is an og in crypto uh you have uh a little more gray hair than, than all of us, I think, on this call. So, you know, I'd welcome your perspective on just this entire situation. I'm not sure if you if you caught SBF's speech they just gave at the, the Dealbook Summit, but would love to just get your your take on all this. Yeah, no, um, I, I watched the interview and uh, I got pissed off at it like everybody else. Uh, it is, I would echo a lot of things that Eric said. This is this is this is a crime that we already have rules of uh, that cover. This is fraud and crime and commingling of money that we've seen in the traditional financial world. You know, the most recent example, the most recent high-profile example of this might be MF Global ten years ago. Former New Jersey Governor John Corzine commingled a few hundred million dollars worth of customer funds. So, in the traditional financial space. This is a story we've seen before. Uh, it isn't a crypto story in that regard. Uh, it has become a crypto story because that's the way the media wants to spin it. They want to use it as a reason to bash or regulate crypto. Uh, when Arctico's hedge fund goes out of business earlier this year because they had too much leverage, everybody looked at it and said, here's the problem with Arctico's. Nobody said, hey, we got to get rid of all the hedge funds. 
uh, because they're all bad. But this is unfortunate for the way that it's going to be for crypto. And I agree with Eric that there's no way you can spin this as being good for crypto. Uh, it is bad. It is going to be bad for a while. Maybe there will be a, a better understanding of the space and a different attitude about things over the long term that might turn out to be good. But you can't look at this, uh, you know, and, um, you know, say that this is a somehow going to be a long term positive for the industry. Uh, so it is kind of disappointing, um, everything that we've seen right now. And I do hope that, you know, what I heard you guys talking about earlier, that self-custody and DeFi become more of an option for people. I think the UX and UI has to get a lot better. I always use my mother as an example. You know, if I was to hand my mom her iPhone and say, here, mom, log on and, and self-custody your coins. She actually does own some Bitcoin on Coinbase. Um, it would, she couldn't do it. I mean, at this point with the UX and the UI. And it's got to get to that point. So hopefully that will become the focus in the industry, how to get people self-custody, how to get people connected to DeFi. Maybe that would be a positive over the long term. Um, but right now it's 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 infuriating to watch him. I, I, I just say that in the first five minutes of the interview, when Sorkin read the inter the letter about the guy that lost his life savings and Sam was laughing, I, I almost I almost vomited. It was just it was terrible to see him doing that. So I'll just stop there before I get myself any more angry than I am right now. I, I completely agree, Jim. Um, yeah, and, you know, that's why I, I, I'll ask you, you know, this, this question, because I think it's, I think most of the people who are listening on this basis feel the same way that you do. Um, I also know that you interface with a lot of folks that are outside of the, the our sort of bubble that we've got here in crypto, some more traditional money managers, uh, bankers, etc. I mean, what do you think the general perception of Sam is on that side of the world? And do you think they were watching this this interview feeling the same way that you did, or did they have a different interpretation? I'm, I'm going to give you, an, I'll give you an unvarnished answer here. If you're asking me about the traditional no coiners, uh, they probably didn't want the interview. Sam is crypto. Crypto is a fraud. Crypto is a scam. Crypto is uh, out of control gambling. And that's why they're no coiners. And this just feeds right into that narrative. Uh, and it's going to continue to feed into that narrative. What they need to have for um, crypto, I think the no-coiners argument is, what does, what does crypto need for legitimacy is it needs a real use case. And the real use case is not that I get to stake it on FTX and earn more coins, but to tie it back to the real world. So I, I, I think that you know, you're just going to continue to see more gloating, more I told you so's. Um, you know, more crypto is is nonsense to use Gary, the Minneapolis Fed's president's uh, comment about this thing last week that he called the entire crypto space nonsense. I think you're going to see more of that as we come forward. What, um, Eric and Jim, do you both think is the solution to preventing things like this from happening again? Um, you know, I think on the one hand, there's Eric, I heard you argue passionately for this in the the original debate that you did with SBF on, on the Bankless podcast a couple of weeks ago that, you know, I think there's good reason to either be wary of regulators stepping in too forcefully at the current time uh, or just to kind of want to keep them at arm's length for now. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I, I am a little bit worried about this idea that we're just going to self-regulate here and push the bad actors out and that that will eventually work because while that might work over the long term, there's a lot of people that sort of get hurt in the process, right? I have friends who've lost lots of money on on FTX uh, and other ways and in, more indirectly from what Sam did. So how do you how do you think the industry moves forward from here? How do we prevent more FBS from from happening? So th this answer is really easy. And anyone who's heard me talk at all in the last month knows exactly what I'm going to say. The way you stop problems of people is to remove them and remove their subjectivity from the operations of finance. You do that with smart contracts. Right. The reason we can trust Bitcoin as an asset is because it operates according to open source code that has been in the wild for many years. And there is no human subjectivity involved in the operation of Bitcoin. We can trust it. Similarly, in Ethereum and in smart contracts, we can trust them according to the code. We can't always trust that the code is written well, but we can trust that it will act as, as written. So we can absolutely transcend bad actors by removing them from the operations of finance. And if we miss that opportunity, then 
then we've really like just been totally ignorant to what we're doing. Um, the answer is not some 500th regulation to be borne down on someone like Sam. Like, does, any, does anyone think that some different regulation on Sam would have changed the outcome? Again, what he did already violated the regulations. Regulations from the government are squishy, subjectively enforced, jurisdictional. They're not applied equally everywhere. It depends on who you know, how you're treated, what different subjective evidence is gathered, if ever. And that's just so primitive and anachronistic relative to a financial foundation that is open source code, immutable, borderless, objective, and works 100% of the time as written. That is the answer to how you fix issues like SPF. Uh, I'll echo that. I think you got it exactly right. You know, Reagan's famous line, trust but verify. You need a way to verify. And the verify is the blockchain. And the verify is that you should be able to go on chain and you should be able to see everything and you know it's there because it's immutable and it can't be um, uh, doctored in any way. <clears throat> the problem with the traditional financial world, and we've seen this with the discussions of regulation, is the way that they want to regulate is they want all regulators have, if you read the regulations, is a human being's in charge of something. And a human being is responsible to do this, whether it's a compliance officer, a chief financial officer, a CEO or board of directors, they're responsible to do X, Y and Z. And if they don't, you threaten those people. And where what Eric was saying, then the subjectivity gets into how we're going to threaten them, when we're going to threaten them, when they have to do it. And, and so if you want, if you think that more rules on putting people in charge subjectively to run things is the answer then crypto's lost its soul. It's lost its purpose. That was kind of why I got interested in this was we were moving away from that. We were moving to something different. But if all we're going to do is create a digital version of what we already have, and then I'm going to lose interest in this space because we already have it. We don't need another version of it. So I agree that it is going to have to be something like code is law. Look on chain. Look at the smart contract. And there's all the verification you need, the all, the, all the verifying you need, and that's how you can be sure that you're protected. Yeah, I want to I riff on that for a second. Like the, this phrase code is law, I think is kind of catchy, but it's actually a misnomer. Like, co code is not law, code is better than law. Law is subjectively enforced. You don't actually know what law is gonna be applied when, and code operates precisely how it's written. So it transcends law. Code is much better than law. And if, if someone cares about protecting people, and if someone cares about an orderly financial system, they should be overjoyed that we now have something better than law. We have open source immutable code. This is an incredible achievement of human society. And that's what we should be celebrating. Yeah, I would, uh, I would, I, Eric. Um, and, and guys, maybe, I, maybe just, um, you know, I know we've got to wind down here soon. So maybe, I, one thing that we didn't really talk about and was only lightly touched on, I think, during that keynote was the relationship in between SBF and Gary Gensler at the at the SEC. So I'd be curious what both of you think of that relationship. Do you think that Gary Gensler ends up taking some collateral damage from this SBF downfall? I saw Tom Emmer tweet out that he's going to be investigating, uh, you know, quote unquote, investigating the relationship there. So you know, what, if any, impact do you think all this has on, on Gary Gensler? I'll go first. Um, let's talk about who Gary is and what he wants. And these are my opinions that I'm about to express. Gary is a guy that is seeking power in Washington and is most concerned about making sure that Gary moves forward than anything else. He is the head of the SEC. And if you believe the rumors in Washington, Janet Yellen is going to be leaving in a matter of weeks or months. And he wants that job as Treasury Secretary. Again, these are my opinions. In the Democratic administration, a white male is at an inherent disadvantage. So he's been saddling up to Elizabeth Warren. And he needs Elizabeth Warren's endorsement if he wants to get that job. So that's why I think the guy that ran the blockchain course at MIT has been crucifying this industry the last two years because it's just a real politique for him as to where he can go to the next step in his career. <clears throat> um, he's going to stay that way, and he's going to deny thing, and he might be able to walk through this just because he is giving Washington what they want. He was not promoting the industry. He was cracking down on the industry. 
And that's the way that they're going to see it. And he'll do the typical line in Washington. I don't have enough money and I need more money. I need more people. And if I had more money and more people, I would have not only gotten Kim Kardashian, but I would have gotten SPF too. Uh, so give me more money and more people. And unfortunately in Washington, that kind of works as far as an argument goes. So I'm not high on the idea that he's going to take a fall on this. I'd like, personally, I'd like to be wrong on it, but, um, you know, we'll see. And if the Treasury Secretary job comes open, um, we'll see if he becomes on the short list for it. And it won't get any better for crypto if he becomes a Treasury Secretary. He won't all of a sudden have a change of heart at that next position. He'll just be the same Gary he is now with more power. So I hate to be so pessimistic about him. Um, well, I have a long history dealing with the SEC and Based on everything I've seen, I have zero respect for Gary Gensler or that entire institution. I don't know that anyone in crypto feels that they have been protected by the SEC. I know many people in crypto that feel like they have been threatened, harassed, stolen from, impeded by that organization. If there was any justice or accountability in the US regulatory system, uh, whoever oversaw the SEC should be gone because of their absolute failure to actually encourage this area of innovation that can remove the need for trust from from finance and actually protect consumers programmatically like the that <laughs> the people hacking around on eth smart contracts are doing more to protect americans um than the sec is and they're doing it without a dollar of tax money so i think that entire institution should just be dissolved replaced with nothing and I put my trust in open source code more than any regulator. Um, guys, maybe just, you know, sort of final thoughts or closing statements here. You know, what would you say to folks who might be working in crypto who watched, you know, FTX play out? Maybe they either had funds on FTX or they're just watching SBF and are uh, generally a little bit disheartened by the response either by the mainstream media or by the establishment who maybe they feel like aren't either grokking a situation or coming down, you know, as hard as they should be. Um, what, what would your sort of response and statement be to people in the industry who are watching this and, and may have been affected by it? Uh, my, my response is, is just the same thing I said, which is understand why this whole industry exists. It's not for, for dog memes and Lambos. It's to remove the need to trust people from the financial system of earth and you do that through DeFi. you do that through blockchains you do that through open source software and that message has to be continually repeated to people um and unfortunately some of them are only going to learn it on on this kind of pain i would second that too i mean what is the purpose of this this industry what is the purpose why are you here if you are here for memes and lambos um it's not going to end well it's not going to end well for you. Uh, but if you are here to, you know, produce a better financial system, this is part of the process. There's dark days. There's been dark days in this business. If you look backwards, uh, Dow Hack, Mark Gox, we all know those. And in my 30 plus years in the financial, in the traditional financial sector, there's been dark days there too. Uh, whether you're talking about insider trading busts, stock market crashes, um, you know, accidents or whatever. And we, we eventually get there. We eventually will right the ship. If you work in crypto and you believe mission and you continue to do with the mission, the mission will eventually win out. If you think the mission was dog memes and Lambos, then the mission isn't going to win out. So you've got to continue to make the case for the mission of a new decentralized financial system. Work at making that happen. Work at making that better. And eventually it will, it will come to fruition. Guys, really appreciate this. Thanks for those uh, inspiring closing thoughts in 100% agreement with both of you. Um, Eric, Jim, and Jesse, I, I think you're still here, but um, not necessarily able to talk. Appreciate you all lending your time. Um, and to the audience, I hope it was, uh, I hope it was useful to all of you. Uh, certainly was to me. So uh, especially Eric and, and uh, Jim and, and Jesse, thank you all for sharing your time and your thoughts. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye.